Today's a new day, and we have another biography we're discussing today. Dan Smith. Mm-hmm. Go for it. He wrote an bi- autobiography titled Pilgrim of the Heavenly Way, which uh, previously had been published through Loazzo Brothers Publishing out of Neptune, New Jersey, and then later it has been taken up by Granted Ministry Press. Uh, and uh, my, my dear friend, Charles Leiter, he uh, helps out with Granted Ministries, and they, uh, they knew about and had heard Dan Smith. Uh, my wife and I, Anne, we had knew Dan. We had him stay in our home. He was with us right at the time when our first daughter was born. And I, I drove him from preaching appointments. So we had a great relationship with Dan. And he would come through our area on itinerant preaching trips and stop at the, the fellowship where we were first baptized. And he, uh, and, and, and he would take a walk every noon down to the post office. He was a man of great discipline. And he would get up before breakfast and write letters. And uh, I think before he did that, he would have a, what he call a short devotional time, pray, read the scriptures, write letters, go eat breakfast, and after breakfast, spend the rest of the morning in prayer. And the people that he would stay with would report to me how that they could hear his voice behind his bedroom door as he was beseeching the Lord and praying. And then he would come out at lunchtime, catch a bite, and then take a walk to the post office, wherever it was, and mail those letters that he'd written before breakfast. Nice. And he would say to us, I am a man of discipline. (laughs) (laughs) He did that every day. And, uh, And the thing that really attracted us to Dan was at the time, this was way back, in 1973, uh, or maybe 1974, I, I'm trying to remember exactly the, the year that I, we first met him, he uh, would come through town in the, and we were talking with our, our friends in the fellowship there about, about Dan, who was Dan and what was he about, and they told me that he had tr- helped translate one of the books by Watchman Nee. And I was reading a lot of Watchman Nee at the time. Watchman Nee was to us considered like a Christian martyr. And he, after World War II, was framed by the communist government. They put him under house arrest, ended up putting him in prison. And finally, after many years, he passed away, I believe in 1972, in a Chinese prison. Hmm. And I had uh, gotten a hold of, somewhere along the line, uh, a biography about Watchman Nee by Angus Kinnear called Against the Tide. And it was, to me, the first full-length biography I'd ever read about a prominent Christian. Hmm. It made a great influence, great impress on me. A funny detail is that I, at the time, tended to be quite moody, and I would get depressed. And I was quite astounded to find out that Watchman Nee had periods of depression, <laughs> where he could barely get out of bed in the morning, and, and 
according to the author of the book, that he would spend two months in a gloom. Oh, and you were like, brother. <laughs> well, well, it was surprising to me because when you'd read his writings, you thought, man, this guy walks on water. And, and uh, it, it seemed like such deep teaching to me and that his Christianity was so exper experiential. Hmm. And I was greatly influenced by it. I really, really appreciated reading Watchman Nee's stuff. So I was getting a hold of everything that I could by Watchman Nee and reading it. And, uh, and then to find that out, I thought, wow. I, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know what, I, I was puzzled by it, really. Like he puts his pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it turns out that when I did meet Dan, he was not a very tall man, but pretty well put together. And, and he was an energetic guy. He liked to go take a walk every day. And he said when he first went out as a missionary to China, he was as strong as a horse. A strong. I am a man. I was strong as a horse. I'm a man of discipline. I'm a man of discipline. Was he a foreign? Was he? Did he have an accent? Was he English, Canadian? Uh, well, Irish? he was. Uh, he had a bit of Scottish and Welsh in him. Scotland. Okay. His. He had that swarthy kind of skin. Uh, the people who live south of Glasgow, there's an area there in the lowlands of Scotland, where F Fred Stanley Arnett came from, and also David Livingston. And they were not tall men. At least Livingston was not a tall guy. No. And he had that swarthy kind what, of skin. What swarthy mean? Well, a little darker. Okay. Some people, they're very pink. Yeah. And we think often of these red-haired, pink-skinned people from Scotland. Yeah, but yeah. But there's also a category among them, which is shorter. They're not tall, big people. And they have that darker complexion. Yeah. And they're a bit of a throwback to the original habit inhabitants. Oh. Yeah, whereas these uh, uh, red-haired folk, are, they're just all a crew of shipwrecked Vikings. Yes, <laughs> yes. They're imports. That is, that is my favorite narrative about the UK. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan Smith came from, uh, from the, the old country. Okay. And he had some Welsh in him. He had some Scottish in him. He may have had other things in him too, as well, but he ended up getting converted as a young person and went to King's College. And one of his classmates was Leonard Ravenhill. Oh, really? The revival yeah. preacher? Yeah. Why Revival Terries? That guy. That was his famous book. And, and, uh, and they were both classmates together. Wow. And, and also there was a man named Joe Blinko who became an associate with the Billy Graham Crusades. He also went there and became a very close friend with Dan Smith. And it was in a time back in the, uh, in the late 20s and early 30s when you had these pulpit orators who were artists on the platform. And they often spoke without any... With any uh, mechanical or electronic accompaniment. They didn't have microphones and speaker systems. Oh, so they could just send their voice to the back. Yeah, of they would project themselves. Yeah. And they understood the the dynamic of preaching, hmm. which uh, is actually the kind of influence that Billy Graham had 
when Billy Graham was a young man, uh, he, he made himself a student hmm. under those kinds of orators. Like Billy Sunday or guys like that. Yeah, those guys. They would, they would get into an auditorium and speak to 10,000 people. Really? Yeah, and they understood the uh, what a sermon ought to be. Huh. Yeah, it was it was quite a phenomena. Dan Smith, he went out to China under the China Inland Mission, and on board ship in 1934, as he was traveling toward China, they got the news that John and Betty Stam had been martyred in China. Oh, man. Yeah, because stuff is starting to boil over over in China right now yeah, in the 30s. Yeah. Well, there were these these uh, uh, persecutions which would occur periodically. Mm-hmm. For instance, the, the massive one you usually hear about was the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, okay. which was the first year um, that D.E. Host was the director of the China Inland Mission. Okay. He had taken over from Hudson Taylor. And the very first year when he took over, the Boxer Rebellion broke out. Oh, and I think there was more than 150 uh, missionaries, most of them European type, some Americans and, Austro- and Canadians and such, that were all all murdered wow. uh, during that during that persecution, wow. it was a massive thing, and that was like a, that was an internal, that was a civil war type thing, kind of a. Uh, it was a regional thing, okay. But the people who did it were into certain occult practices. They were in, um, they were known for uh, practicing su- certain martial arts, okay. and so people watching them thought they were boxing. You know, they thought of it as boxing. Oh. And they, they called them the boxers. Interesting. Yeah. And th- that's another topic, and it would be a great thing to discuss sometime. But uh, there were these periodic persecutions that broke out. And and John and Betty Stam were martyred. Their daughter spared. They had an infant daughter. They had just recently gone out as wow. missionaries. And what, where were they from? What country? Well, they were from the United States. Okay. In fact, we live, Ann and I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and they had a connection with the Calvary Undenom- Denominational Church here in Grand Rapids. Right over and visited up. the church yeah. here in Grand Rapids uh, before they they went overseas. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the Stams... Uh, had connections with believers in Wisconsin. Uh, he he had a brother who became very prominent with the uh, mid-ax dispensationalists uh, over at, in the Milwaukee area. Okay, and just kind of a eccentric sidelight there. Uh, <laughs> you know, Wisconsin. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. What do you expect? It's Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> oh and, no. Oh no. And so Dan, with that news in, in his pocket, he arrives in China, and, and then he is met by D.E. Host. Oh. And he uh, spent a, a time, uh, he had a prayer session, actually, one morning with Brother Host. And, and he talks about it in his biography, quite remarkable. And he ended up going to an area in what would later be called Lisu Land, where James O. Fraser labored. There's a book 
written about Fraser, uh, uh, James O. Fraser, by Geraldine Guinness. The Guinness family. Yeah, and and Geraldine's father, Grattan Guinness, yes. as a young man, had been an instrument that God used in the amazing revival that swept through Ireland and into Scotland. He's the one that climbed up the stovepipe. No, no, no he was the one preaching. Oh, he I, was preaching. That, okay. Yeah, yeah, that... Uh, uh, George Fraser oh, okay. climbed up. There's another Fraser. Yes. George Fraser climbed up the yes. the drain pipe, and there he listened. Yes. To Grattan Guinness, and Grattan Guinness spoke from the text. Yet there is room. Yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, Grattan Guinness uh, raised Geraldine, his daughter, and he became a go- close friend with Hudson Taylor. Okay. And he was a co-laborer <coughs> with Hudson Taylor hmm. and helped out the mission. Nice. And then uh, Hudson Taylor had a son named Dr. Howard Taylor, <coughs> and the two married. So Dr. Howard Taylor and uh, Geraldine, Geraldine became Mrs. Howard Taylor, and so all the missionary biographies that she wrote, she wrote many, and those are the premier missionary biographies to get a hold of. If you're interested in authentic Christianity, and you're interested in really good missionary biographies, go for the author, Mrs. Howard Taylor, or by her maiden name, Geraldine Guinness. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was she was characterized by journalistic integrity. <laughs> well, she had an inside connection with a lot of great missionaries, knew them. Hmm. Uh, she uh, her fa- she wrote her father-in-law's biography, two-volume biography about the life and labors of Hudson Taylor, and many of the other great missionaries. And one of them that she wrote about was James O. Fraser, nice. who labored in an area right above the country of Burma on the Chinese side, a very mountainous area called Lisu land. Okay. And he saw revival. He saw awakenings there Hmm. and a great work. And a couple of the missionaries that labored with Fraser. Now, Fraser, he was a senior missionary. He had come from England and... And there was other younger missionaries that came in to labor there. And one of them was Isabel Kuhn. And Excuse me. We, uh, we know that name, Isabel Kuhn, because she wrote many devotional books, okay. which were a great encouragement to the Lord's people. And uh, just trying to see some of those titles. Nothing Daunting... By searching, that was one of that was one of her books that you often see. By this, searching, by searching, yeah, yeah. You, you know, we search the scriptures, but the Lord says, uh, "Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Yeah. Knock and the door shall be opened." Hmm. That idea that we come to Him and we're searching. Uh, he, she has a a a. a, a, a a book, Nests Above the Abyss. Hmm. 
That, that idea of the steep cliffs of Lisu land come before you when you think about that. Wild. Green leaf in drought time. What do you do in those, in those dry seasons in your Christian life? Yeah. And, and then the very idea that God can give us freshness and life. So she wrote many uh, really remarkable missionary-type devotional books which referenced her missionary experience, she and her husband, and, and also uh, most of them are available or in print now. Oh, cool. So cool. you can get them. They're not very long. Yeah. And, and then along with uh, uh, the Coons, Dan Smith came. And it was there that he he met his wife Anne, and uh, she was a single missionary, and they were married. And he, it's quite interesting to listen to him talk about their courtship. I remember talking with him one time about uh, getting getting married, and I said to Dan, I said, you know, I, I think the Lord is calling me uh, to uh, go serve the Lord and maybe to go overseas. Well, I was just a college student and I was very green and I didn't know anything. And I had just only recently been saved and he probably knew how immature I was. And I wasn't 20 years old yet. And, and he, he, he said, well, you're not ready. Well, I didn't want to hear that. What a it, blunt Scotch, huh? what a blunt Scotsman. Yeah, yeah, Chill. yeah, and, and and then and then, uh, well, I I said, well, well, how uh, how should I get ready? And then he he said he he gave me the first, uh, do thy work without and make it fit for thyself, and afterward you shall build your house. And he says, you know, you you have to think about uh, getting married. You go overseas, you'll never be accepted as a single person. Because most of these cultures, everyone is married. And a single person is not, it's an odd deal. Interesting. Well, that actually isn't true. There are many, many missionaries who were single people. And, and you make, show many examples of it. But, uh, but, but, it, but that's what he told me. Huh. And I think he probably knew that I, if I would mature and actually get to the place where I could get married to somebody worth getting married to, that it would help me hugely. Yeah. And and which I of course have come to see. <laughs> and he was like, marry someone named Anne. That's a clutch move. <laughs> no. <laughs> so yeah, interestingly, his wife had a North Dakota connection. What? Yeah. Heartland. Yeah. Her family had lived for a time in North Dakota. Wow, salad that's actually des- <clears throat> dessert casserole, huh? salad that is actually dessert. <laughs> North they have salad, but it's actually like whipped topping and Jello with fruit. Like, oh, that's salad. It's like ah, kind of a dessert, really. <laughs> and then afterward, they give you chocolate cake. That's that's North Dakota talk. Yep. Yeah, heartland food. Yeah, you have to go through cultural in- orientation to know that. Yeah. Uh, Dan uh, labored there and and saw awakening, and he tells about it in his book, Pilgrim of the Heavenly Way, while he was there working. He didn't work directly uh, with the Coons, 
but in another area. And the distances were great because it was so mountainous. Hmm. So when you have these steep mountainous areas, and then to get over to another area, you know, sometimes you might walk for days. Okay. But Dan was used to this kind of thing because he walked all the time. That's huh. what they did. When World War II occurred and the communists took over, the China Inland Mission in China, they're virtually collapsed. Oh, really? And at, at, one, at any one given time, it, uh, back in those days, there might have been a thousand missionaries out spread around the country of China who worked under the mission. Wow. There was a lot of missionaries who were laboring in very difficult places often. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, at, so that when the mission collapsed, uh, a lot of the missionaries didn't have a, a way to get out. They, they were, in a way, locked in. So one of the things that a mission will do is they'll say, well, if, if trouble occurs, we'll try to find a way to get you out to the coast so that you can get rescued. And today, when people go as foreign missions, missionaries to other countries, if they have a missionary visa, they, uh, they have a kind of an insurance plan where either through the government, the U.S. government, or through the mission that they went out with, there's a way for them to be evacuated if there's a rebellion or a revolution going on. Okay. And that's just something that, that they've learned over the years, mm. these missionaries because of who they are and their status, they, they need to think about that issue. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and that actually happened when the Chinese took over. They, of course, wanted all the foreign missionaries out. Okay. And, and so Dan, uh, what he ended up doing, his children were out on the coast. And he was a long ways away. In way up in the mountains, North, they were at school okay, at some... the time out on the coast, and he was in these mountainous areas north of Burma. And uh, he ended up taking a, a boat down through a river that goes right through the middle of Burma, right down to Yangon, and then out, out from there, he went to Australia. Okay. And then later, spent some time in, um, well, he stopped at another island. I want to say it was Ceylon, and then went over into India. And his kids, huh? His kids met up with him, or they stayed in uh, China, and he's well, like, oh, I don't know. No, he he met up with his children in okay. Australia. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, well, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go for it. Well, in those days, um, oftentimes, for different reasons, it was not unusual for, for people to have long absences from family members. Mm -hmm. You know, like a, a guy to leave his wife with the kids while he goes someplace else or whatever, which I think we find 
quite shocking, although we do notice that immigrants, for instance, to the United States, will often find out that we'll have a guy working beside us and, oh, he's got a wife back in India. Yeah. And, and she's been there now for four months. And, and, and to us, as Americans, we think that's unthinkable. Yeah, yeah. But they're doing it, and they, they just look at it as a practical necessity because of the difficulties. And we're not usually very sympathetic with that, no. but it is something which they do. Yeah. So uh, Dan went into India, and there he linked up with a man named Bok Singh. And Bok Singh was a Christian who had been converted out of uh, Sikhism. Okay. Yeah, the Sikhs, they're that group of people that have a, a semi-Muslim, uh, semi-Hindu thing, and they, they let their hair grow long, and they'll often, you, you'll identify them because they wear a turban. Well, they're, yeah, Sikhism, the purpose is to eradicate Muslims. So the idea is they grow their hair. I'm quite positive this is what it is. They'll continue growing their hair out until they've killed every Muslim. And if a true oh, really? Sikh would carry a sword, a dagger on it, if they ever met a Muslim, they'd take their life. So we were like, oh, they're just like Muslims, but they're like the opposite. Not really. Yeah. I had never heard that, but... Um, they're Punjabis, right? From the north of India? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well... A lot of them. I shouldn't yeah. say all of them. Yeah, well, maybe that's the uh, um, the, the the radical side of Sikhism. Huh? Yeah, you're never gonna encounter. It. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you meet a you know someone with the last name Singh here, and they're not gonna. It's not gonna be the case. They're nice. Oh, I see. But I see. on paper, that's the idea. I see. So yeah. So I think <coughs> someone can call me and. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll have to look that up. That's, yeah. That's quite amazing. So uh, he uh, met Buck Singh, this was after World War II and into the early 50s, and he traveled with Buck Singh, who largely worked in the state of Tamil Nadu. Okay. And he formed congregations which uh, broke bread regularly and tried to maintain a non-denominational status. They'd have things like plural eldership, but they also, uh, one thing that set the churches apart was they believed in a kind of present-day apostleship. Hmm. And it was a belief similar to what Watchman Nee held. Watchman Nee uh, taught, and he does this in one of his books, that uh, the Lord Jesus was the apostle and high priest of our faith. And so he is the apostle sent to represent his father. When the Lord Jesus then was on earth, he in turn sent out 12 apostles okay. and then also sent out the apostle Paul. They were apostles sent by the Son to go into all the world. Yeah. And then today, after the Holy Spirit came, missionaries have been sent out, and they are apostles sent by the Holy Spirit. Interesting. So, I, uh, so then you have apostles sent by the Father, the, the, an apostle, that is the Lord Jesus, apostles sent by the Son, the Twelve and Paul, and then 
other apostles, and I, I know that Barnabas is referred to as among the apostles, okay. even though he wasn't one of the twelve. Yeah, and and I'm not, I, I uh, I'm not sure at the moment, but it seems to me that that term apostles is used in a tertiary way. Yeah, it means sent one, right? Sent one. Yeah. yeah. We don't see the word missionary in Scripture, but it's a word we commonly use. Yeah. But a missionary is a guy on a mission, so he's somebody like an apostle. So Watchman Nee, he taught that there are present-day apostles. Okay. So if, if, you, if you treat it that this is in not in the sense in which the Lord... The Lord Jesus is our one apostle, or like the 12, they were apostles who will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. So they're special apostles. Yeah. They have a special role. Mm -hmm. So if there are apostles who have been sent by the Holy Spirit, uh, they shouldn't take upon themselves more authority than the 12. Yeah. And certainly not as much as the first. So, but the reason I think most people object to a teaching of present day apostles is that whenever we've had people who step forward and said, I'm an apostle. Yeah. Sometimes they took more authority on themselves than even the apostle Paul said. Yeah, yeah. You know, Paul would, would sometimes, uh, uh, mention something, mm -hmm. but as if to say, now you need to d deal with this. Yes. Yeah. Like in Corinthians, he says, uh, even though he was not present, he could judge the matter, but he calls upon them. He says, you're the ones who need to act. Yeah, yeah. I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah. The, so that was a unique thing about boxing's work, but... While Dan Smith was working with him, he saw about 500 congregations formed. And wow. they looked to him as an apostle. Okay. He continued to labor for many years and had an amazing ministry. Dan Smith. Well, or boxing. Bo boxing, okay. Boxing. Dan, Dan traveled with him, knew him personally. Yep. And Dan wrote a booklet about boxing. Okay. Which... I think you could probably find. If you, uh, I don't know if it's been republished. There has been a fuller biography about boxing written. Okay. Since that time. But in India, he's well known. Okay. And when he came to die, boxing, they used a rugby stadium, which is a big stadium, yeah. for the viewing. And they put the funeral procession on national television in, or, you know, uh, uh, yeah, on television there wow. in, uh, I think they might have had it in Chennai or Hyderabad, but he, uh, uh, that's where he had labored largely, it was in Tamil Nadu. Wow. It's such yeah. an influence. Yeah. I, I remember I was on a train once and visiting with a brother, and I and he, he found out he was a believer, and I asked him if he knew anything about boxing. He said, oh, yeah, that's the kind of fellowship I go hmm. fellowship with. Interesting. So it's just kind of its only, or kind of its own denomination now in India. Um, well, because of the apostleship thing. Yeah. See, there are other Christians who, 
would not agree, I'm going to submit to your apostle. Yeah. But they might do things very similarly because there are thousands and thousands, we found out, of, of congregations. They'll meet together, plural leadership. They're non-denominational. They break bread. But they wouldn't work deliberately with Boxing. Okay. Because of the apostleship matter. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and in India, there was a revival that broke out in about in the middle of the 1800s. Okay. And and it became quite energetic. And in that revival time, they composed their own hymns in Malayalam, which was a language of Kerala in the far south of India. Yeah. And they uh, they were you know translating scripture and into the vernacular and and a, a very vigorous works sprang up nice. so today when i meet a christian who's from india yeah. i'll ask him do you speak malayalam yeah and quite often they do yeah yeah it's almost yeah. seems like a christian because there's state. been a very powerful work yeah. there's more literacy in Kerala than any other state in in India, uh, good universities, a lot of professional workers, mm. people up in the north all want to go down south oh. because that's where the better schools are. Interesting. Yeah, and but in Kerala itself, that's where the revival took place. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it was a re- remarkable thing, yeah. and a lot of the congregations sprang up were totally indigenous. Yeah. They, now, there were British missionaries and Anglo, a lot of them Anglicans who labored and I'm sure had influence. But when you talk to the Indians themselves, they say, uh, really, it, it, uh, uh, the awakening was not really so much because of, there was just these people themselves discovering things out of the word of God. Yeah. Now, whether that's nationalistic pride or that, that's really the way it was, I don't know. So Dan Smith had this experience being there in India and seeing this kind of Christianity. He'd seen, he had, he had been among living Christians there in uh, Samuel Chadwick had run the King's College where he and Leonard Ravenhill had gone to school mm-hmm. in England. And he had that experience of... Uh, of of seeing uh, real prayer meetings and and uh, really scriptural preaching, yeah. he had seen revival. He had met uh, James Fraser in China, and Fraser had seen revival. Dan saw revival. Cool. And and then he gone had gone to India and seen an ongoing work of revival. So. Uh, of course, one of the things when he was in China, Dan had, on the coast, met Watchman Nee, and he, working with a lady missionary who was of Chinese, uh, a Chinese, mm-hmm. they labored together to translate the uh, Watchman Nee's commentary, it's a devotional commentary, on the Song of Solomon. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it's, now translate it into English? Yeah, okay. yeah. So if you buy Watchman Nee's book on the Song of Solomon, yep. and it might be titled The Song of Songs, it, you'll see Dan Smith uh, on, the, on the 
frontispiece okay. of that book. Nice, nice. Uh, yeah. Now, where's his wife right now? She's with the Lord. Okay. And Dan is too. Yeah, I'm sorry, right now. In the story. <laughs> In history. He well, goes to India. His yeah. His kids are on the coast. They, they both emigrated from there to Vancouver. Oh, okay. Yeah. Canada. They, huh? Canada. Yeah, yep. Vancouver, Canada. And it was after they had moved to Vancouver that Dan connected up with assemblies as I had been fellowshipping with uh, up in Canada in the United States. Okay. He began, I think, as a Baptist. Okay. And then through his missionary journeys, of course, he was, while there in, in, uh, in China, yep. of course, you're, you're thrown in with all kinds of different people. Yeah. But actually, Hudson Taylor tried to group people together. So if there was people from an Anglican background, he who came as missionaries of China Inland Mission, he'd try to group them together in a certain area. Oh, really? Yeah, he would. And and other, or if they were more of a, um, a Baptist type of thinking or Presbyterian, he'd, he'd try to get them together. Just in, in the interest of uh, there are so many things to make adjustments to. Let's make it as easy as we can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that was one of the lessons they learned along the way, that, that hey, there are a lot of adjustments that you have to make. Oh, man. With all these people, strangers being thrown together mm-hmm. in a strange place. So, uh, But he had had a Baptist type of background, and then he... Uh, uh, but... His time with boxing, especially, and seeing the way in which they had these organic fellowships, largely indigenous, and and just the nature of church growth and the way it was happening. Nice. That you you come to see that a lot of this denominational machinery is not so necessary. Yeah. 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 Well, you talk to a believer who's been a, a missionary in... Niger or somewhere where it's it's tough going. Yeah. And the whole denominational idea is not not in their not on their radar and they're like, "What? Why? Why would this be an issue?" Yeah. So right. and yeah, suddenly when the rubber meets the road, those issues that we try to put between one another really aren't. And and legitimate. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's shown that they shouldn't have ever been an issue. And there's things, you know, different interpretations of certain scripture. But really, is that going to affect how you train your kids each day and how you treat your wife and how you behave at church, how you treat other Christians? Yeah. Is it going to affect the gospel you preach? We here in the United States have a unique and strange situation where you have dozens and dozens of different kinds of churches in one small town yeah and all even all all protestant yeah and and i i i see how this works i meet a brother uh we have a good friendship but as far as actual co-laboring it seems that people think that they have a vested interest in only working with people inside their little network 
Mm-hmm. So as far as as somebody who has some wrinkle of difference, that we, we could never have him come and speak to us. Even if we had some little special event, we, we can't find a way to invite somebody from the outside of our little group from coming and talking to us. And the sad part is that the Christians find themselves with a ghetto mentality. By that, I mean, yeah, uh, in Eastern Europe, when they isolated the Jews in a community, they called it the ghetto. Mm-hmm. And today, we talk about the inner city as a ghetto. Well, what has happened is you have uh, a certain demographic that only lives in that area, and they can't get out. Yeah, They don't know how to get out. And, and so oftentimes, with, uh, with the... The Jews, they were actually imprisoned in a way. Yeah. They were forced to live in a certain a certain neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could argue that that's not really true as far as forcing people to live in the ghetto, but there's certainly a mentality that way. Well, yeah, there's, I, I feel strongly there's a big feeling in certain cultural areas where they just... This is it. Yeah. I'm here. And there's, Elvis wrote a song about it. Cold yeah. and gray Chicago morning. Well, it, it, when we have a strong denominational loyalty, mm-hmm. and the only people we can learn from, the only people I can be blessed by, are people within my group. That's a ghetto mentality. Yeah. And, yeah. and they can't break free of it. The sad part is then... All the things that you will, you're saying I'm open to te- be taught about are things which they're endlessly repeating. Yeah. They say good things. They, uh, your group, I hope, yeah. says good things, but they're endlessly repeating them. And then there's other whole areas which they hardly touch on. Yeah. And so you'll go to another group and they'll have real strong points. Yeah. And I've seen it. I've seen groups which are very strong about family order, discipline of children, and different areas in which are very strong on practical side. Sometimes not very strong doctrinally where they should be, mm-hmm. but practically they have good points. Yeah. And, or, or a group that is strong on service, and they really know how to volunteer and get in with both feet whenever there's a need. Yeah. Or, or other groups that are very real givers, they know how to give. Yeah. But because they have, in the distant past, uh, come under the leadership of some uh, prominent leader, and they're very proud of it, and very much appreciate that person, then they can only be blessed by people in their group. Yeah. They would never say that, but that's practically what's going on. Yeah. Now, it's a ghetto mentality. It's like you're living in a cave and you don't know what's going on. And you're trapped in Christian babyhood. Hmm. We so, only listen to John B. Orley's preaching. No. <laughs> oh, sad, isn't it? Man. So, Dan was a guy who had some wide experience, but in all of that, 
when he came over to Vancouver, he, uh, he went to a place where he had an open door and where he basically agreed with the Christians. And so he fellowshiped with a congregation there in Vancouver. And uh, I actually later uh, uh, visited that fellowship on a trip that I was able to make out to Vancouver. And, and, and Dan, of course, in years previous, in the 70s and 80s, he was traveling through our area. He'd come down through Canada, visiting places from place to place. He'd write letters on ahead to elders in the church saying, I'm available, I can come. And, and they would set up appointments with him and he would move from one church to another, sometimes staying a week in a place and having meetings every night. Okay, oh, this is the cloth you're cut from. This is what you like. <laughs> You, know, you better get me speaking, not 45 minutes on Sunday, I tell you what. <laughs> yeah, they called these men laboring brethren. Laboring. Yeah, we don't just speak twice twice a week, we speak every night of the week. Man. But he, he was a very interesting guy. And one time he had an experience where one of his sons had a car, uh, some problem with the automobile car accident and a guy was quite angry with him was going to sue him being very rough with him hmm. and dan called the man up and he said to the man i am a man of god and then he went on to make an appeal for his son's case that the guy would desist and not try to rough him up well the way in which he said it put such a fear in this guy I am a man of God. Get it. But I can exactly hear Dan saying yeah. that. That was the way he was. Was it the super spiritual Scottish accent? Well, he did have that That's, accent. That he, sells very well in He had well an old country America. type of accent. I don't know. Yeah. wasn't exactly Scottish, but you could pick up a little of that. You just think over the phone, he's holding a big black Bible right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dan was a real gift. Uh, when he told me about that one verse, prepare your work without it, make it fit for yourself, and afterward you shall build your house. That The idea was, it's a verse from the Proverbs, Yes. there that uh, uh, get established in a trade. And he believed that. You need to have a trade. You need to get out and work and decide what it is that you should do in life. And then once you've gotten yourself established, just like the, when the pioneers came over from the, from the old country or wherever they came from, they would get out and the very first thing they do, even before they built their house, was plow the land. Hmm. Prepare your work outside in the field and then afterwards build your house. Make it fit for yourself. Get the field work done because the field work is going to pay the bills. Yeah. And you, you need some income. You need some working capital. So get that harvest in. And once you've got the harvest, then you can build your house. It's a principle that the early settlers used. They, they would live in a temporary dwelling, like a sod hut or a tent even. Yeah. And then while they were just barely camping out, they would get that field done. And then afterward, they would have enough wherewithal to build a house. Hmm. That was quite often the case. That's like your dad 
Was he in Sod Hut? Great grandpa. Your so my great grandpa, your grandpa, grew up in a Sod Hut. Well, lived the, the first few years of his life in yeah. a Sod Hut. Yeah, in North was, Dakota. Yeah, he was a toddler in a Sod Hut Man. on the side of a hill in Nelson County, North Dakota. <laughs> yeah, we tried to find it. I droned that valley. I couldn't find it. Yeah, well, it would be pretty hard to locate now. Yeah, but. Uh, that's where it was. You were in the right place. Yeah. So they prepped the field. So he told you this. And so yeah. you went. Yeah. And he said, once you've gotten yourself established, then you'll get ready to be married. Okay. Actually, what I found was that there were many prominent missionaries who went out as missionaries, as single men, and later got married. And Dan Smith was one of them. I know. He went out as a single man. And uh, Jim Elliott went out as a single man. And David Livingston went out as a single man. A lot of the, well, Hudson Taylor went out as a single man. Yeah. They went out as single men. But what they, but in their case, that was their calling. Hmm. That was what God was wanting them to do. So they got established in the work. They were working the field. They were plowing. And then as they did the work, God provided for them a wife. Those men. Nice. And in every case just remarkable helpmeets to them yeah. in what God was asking of both of them. Yeah. It was just tremendous. So that's that was a principle that he told me. He said, yeah, uh, do your work outside in the field. Make it fit for yourself. Afterward, you'll build your house. And I tell young people that all the time. Get a trade. Yeah. Get established. Figure out what it is that God wants you to do in life. And then you can think about building a house. That is the family side of things. Yeah. It's just plain good advice. Yeah. And actually, that's what I did. I, I ended up coming to Grand Rapids, and I started working with the Pell family at Gospel Folio Press, and they had a job for me doing a little illustrating, and that moved over to formatting and design, and that moved over into... Uh, editorial and writing nice and I did it for 25 years but when I first got started I realized oh this is a calling that God has for me this is a work and I've been called to this work is this a job (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I had had jobs before but this was the first time I had that definite sense. Yeah. This is the work that God wants me to do. And very shortly thereafter, I proposed to Anne. Nice. And we got married some months later. Nice. Most yeah. of us millennials are like, I don't know if this is what I want to do. And we're yeah. now in our 30s and we're like, I don't know. Yeah. Another great verse that I talked with Dan Smith about was I was asking him about that verse. Uh, he that walks with wise men shall be wise, and a companion of fools shall be destroyed. And he said, what does that mean? Because he and I would take walks together. Oh, nice. He'd, he'd pick he'd his walk brain. together down to where the post office was. Yeah. And he said, if you walk with the wise men, you need to keep pace. Get it. Yeah. And I, I can develop that even more where when you ha- see truly spiritual people, that are wise in the things of God, they're moving at a certain pace. Yeah. So you need to keep up with them. 
Yeah. You can't be dawdling around and fooling around all the time. Yeah. But more than that, uh, this other wise man, what does that mean to walk with wise men? Where does he go? What does he read? Hmm. Who are his friends? You start asking yourself those questions and, and you'll realize, oh, they're not spending their time on uh, uh, evangelical romance novels. That's not how he spends his time. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's not just playing games all the time. Here's a guy who is very natural to him. If we say, let's have a prayer meeting. Says, oh, good. Yeah. That's the yeah. way they think. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody who is very easy at witnessing to people when he's talking to people to bring up the gospel and present the gospel. Hmm. You know, some folks, we, we'll, we'll meet a stranger, we'll talk with them, and the gospel's never mentioned. It's not, it doesn't come into things at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like an awkward thing. And if somebody starts to witness, everybody else falls silent like, oh, no, here it comes. Yeah. And, and, they're, and your friends, the people that you're with, are deeply embarrassed that you're witnessing. Yeah. So, uh, Dan was forthright he was who he was and i just i just really appreciate the time we spent together nice yeah it was a great thing and it and it was around that same time that i read the book um actually it was a few years after i first met dan but in the early 80s 1980s okay when i read the book the pilgrim church by E.H. E. Broadbent. That's a big old read. Well, it is. It's a, it's a serious read. Yeah. And in that book, he, he talked about uh, all these movements of God through the centuries coming up to our time. And to me, that book, along with my friendship with Dan Smith and Dan telling me his experiences, and then actually being able to read his biography, which was he already had published it at that time, even though he was still living, but uh, his autobiography. So, uh, but reading the Pilgrim Church effectively in my life broke the back of sectarianism. Mm. Now, it's not that I'm, I, I have no sectarianism in me or don't have any kind of denominational loyalties i think we all struggle with that yeah i think we all feel uh uneasy in different situations with christians and we're, we don't want to be blessed i i meet a christian i i can tell he's godly and spiritual but but he's he uh but but i don't want to get too blessed <laughs> when i'm around him yeah. yeah, so I think we all have that yeah. in us. Yeah. And I certainly do. Oh, and yeah. I, I struggle with it. But to realize what a deep and ugly sin sectarianism is, how wrong it is, how impoverishing it is. Yeah. That was one of the things I, I saw from Dan because he, he, he really had come to experience great freedom and a lot of the christians that he spent time with were deeply sectarian hmm. 
And, and he knew it, and he tried to help them in it. So that was, that was just a great thing Man, about nice. our friendship with Dan. It was a, really a blessing, and, and I just thank God for, for ever meeting him. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a wrap. There's probably more to say. What was I'm the book? Sure. What's the book on him again? Pilgrim of the Heavenly Way. Pilgrim of the Heavenly Way. Available from Granted Ministries. So you can buy it probably on Amazon. Oh, it's very reasonable. Oh, yeah. You can get it on Amazon. Nice. It's available. Nice. All right. Thank you so much.